to Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Exo Academia. And today's episode is a little unconventional. Uh, as you can probably tell, we sound a little bit different, and that's because we are in the studio of nature, which is something new. What do you think about this setting here, Exo? Yeah, outside of my uh, allergies, I think it's great. And um, <clears throat> we are, we're sitting in a, well, it's like 78 degrees, slight breeze, sitting in the glory of the Blue Ridge Mountains with some, uh, a couple of soccer matches going on in the background. Folks, it's a, it's a nice setting. It really is. It's, uh, the sun is kind of low in the sky and uh, pollen is in the air. Uh, we are uh, dubbing this episode uh, Thinking Outside the Box. Uh, that's kind of what we're going to be going through. And uh, unlike episodes that we've done uh, in the past, we're actually going to take some clips from uh, YouTube uh, interviews with uh, mainly Lou Elizondo, but also Sean Cahill. And we're going to take some of their thoughts and uh, just kind of talk through them and, and unpack them and, and see where they where the conversation takes us. Um, so that, that's sort of what we want to do here. And we're going to we're experimenting, seeing how this goes. So I'm going to queue up our first clip. Um, this came from a pretty recent interview that Lou did uh, with Baptiste on Explorer Lab. And this one is talking about uh, microbial life. So I'm going to get that queued up here. And again, forgive me for digressing here, but but I think it's important. Uh, we are a um, we are a very naive species, and, and we assume and presume far too often. Um, the Romans and and the Greeks recognized that there are two two basic life forms on this planet. There were animals, and there were plants. And it wasn't for for millennia later that we realized there was this other in-between kingdom called fungus that weren't really plants and they weren't really animals and, and they, they, they were their own life form on this planet, right? And, and up until recently, we thought that was it. There is no other, other, other categories of life. And it turns out only in the last century, the last century. Now, we've been around as Homo sapiens sapiens for the last 100,000 years. And yet, in just the last 100 years, the last 10 minutes of, 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 our, of, our, of our existence on this planet, we realize there's been this entire hidden living life form, organisms, if you will, on this planet, uh, that if you were to take all the biomass of all the animals and take all the biomass of all the plants and take all the biomass of all the fungus on this planet and put it together, it still would not equal the biomass of this hidden kingdom that, of life form that we have discovered on this planet. And that is the, the kingdom of the, of the, micro, the realm of the microorganisms. All right, so I uh, figured we'd stop it there. Uh, you know, kind of great conversation uh, with Baptiste. Uh, that Lou is having there. And what he's, I guess what he's trying to do, as far as I can tell, is is get the listener to sort of think a little bit differently about the way in which our knowledge is expanding and how uh, things that we've taken for granted in our history uh, are not necessarily set in stone, that they're, they're in flux. Uh, what would you take away with that? Yeah, it's a really fascinating clip. A couple things I took away from it. One is just a reminder that uh, that knowledge is very recent, that we even became aware of this kind of category of life, right? And so he's partly saying, you know, when you think about 
the history of our species in, the, in such a recent window, we could come to that knowledge, it would be foolish for us to not assume that, or to assume that we're done, that there might be other categories of life, not just types of life, but categories of life that we're not even aware of. Even when I think about, sometimes we look in the most, you know, the deepest trenches of the ocean, or you look in like volcanic kind of sulfuric kind of ecosystems and we find life, you know, like life seems to flourish in really strange environments we wouldn't predict. Um, and on top of that, we kind of have this interesting uh, symbiotic relationship between different kinds of, of categories of life, right? Like you think about all the microorganisms that live off of us and have created kind of a symbiotic kind of arrangement with us. Mm -hmm. Even when you, you have viruses like the pandemic with COVID, you know, the goal of most viruses is to, to find some sort of symbiotic arrangement so they can survive because if they kill the host, it kind of not good news for them in the long run. So, and on top of that, I was thinking about how there's evidence that when we think about ourselves, we often think of, you know, the brain being the executive, you know, um, organizer of our information and in some ways a sense of who we are. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is we now strongly sense that there's actually three different ways that the brain is activated, interacted with. So you have the brain, you have the heart, and you have the bacteria in the gut mm -hmm. that also can trigger reactions in the brain, electrochemical reactions. So even the question of who we are, mm -hmm. who we really are, not just like what kind of aliens exist outside of us, but what kind of aliens might be symbiotically coexisting with us. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be me? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to be you? Um, these are fascinating questions and I, I like what he's doing here. And I would, you know, caution people, this is something we're gonna talk about a fair amount on this episode. Mm -hmm. Rather than running with this and going, finally, Elizondo's giving us the goods, this is what it's about. Mm -hmm. That's not his aim here. And I know that some of the sources I have anyway tell me that, you know, this is actively being investigated by people, you know, deep in government circles. And it's very much an open question. Mm -hmm. And it's very much being investigated, investigated because it's not well understood yet. So let's begin with that caveat. Yeah. And just, just remember that what he's encouraging is outside the box thinking. Don't be, mm. don't expect not to be surprised. Yeah, great point. We're going to come back to that over and over in this episode. And, you know, when I was doing the kind of research and grabbing the clips uh, that we were going to be discussing, you know, what struck me the most is how often he's trying to get that point across that uh, instead of uh, him, you know, dropping breadcrumbs in the way that the community often interprets that to mean in the sense that, you know, this is a, a direct fact that is related to whatever it happens to be. I more and more was struck by the fact that really what Lou is, is, has been doing uh, in the public uh, square has really just been thinking aloud um, and has been trying to get the audience, uh, the, the audience of enthusiasts in this topic to think differently about what it all might be. And to me, that, that is, uh, of course, a big part of what we're trying to do on our show. But for those that um, are either not as familiar with all of the times that he's done this uh, or are, uh, you know, have a little bit of amnesia um, from the last time they did an interview and just cling on to that latest, you know, sort of Lou fact as some type of gospel, 
you know, I think it's a really important reminder. Um, and it's easy to forget, you know, we've, we've, if you've been following this subject for the last few years, you know, you've, you've probably forgotten more than most people know about UFOs and UAPs. And so I think it's easy for us to, you know, who, who, those of us who lack a lot of hard data, hard information to grasp onto every little thing we can and say, well, this is, this is it. This is the cornerstone of, of what the entire situation happens to be. And we can run with this one idea and extrapolate out from that this entire sort of theory as to what this might be. Uh, which is not to say that some of these breadcrumbs may in fact be just that. They may be literal, you know, sort of arrows pointing at what this happens to be. But more and more, at least when I listened to these interviews, I got the sense that Lou himself is not uh, in possession of some sort of, you know, comprehensive uh, manual that explains what is going on. But instead, the facts that he is privy to really do cause him and others to think more broadly, think more abstractly than uh, what people have thought about traditionally when it comes to the, the subject. I just think that's very important to emphasize, uh, and you'll see that we're going to come back to that over and over as we go through these other clips uh, on the show. I mean, it, it, beyond that kind of general, I think, guidance, um, you know, what... Um, what do you think are some of the other kind of traps that folks may fall into when it comes to, you know, listening to quote unquote experts or those who are in the know that, you know, can can be kind of dangerous uh, sort of traps to fall into if we're not being careful? Well, I would first think about the fact that someone like Lou Elizondo has an intelligence background, right? And so one of the first things you learn in, in intelligence uh, is that is how to learn, how to um, think differently about gathering data, how to think outside the box becomes a skill that you must learn, right? And that um, the second you limit yourself to certain possibilities, you have uh, alienated yourself uh, from everything outside of those parameters. And in something as you know, mind-bending as the phenomenon, that's the last thing you wanna do. And I've noticed with Elizondo over time, he, you know, he sort of began with some some glowing praise of the folks on UFO Twitter who are, you know, championing the cause. Over time, I think he's experienced some frustration, I think, because he's asked the same questions over and over again. Mm -hmm. And the same assumptions are brought to the table in the questions he's asked. Mm -hmm. And so more recently, I sense some frustration that he's trying to... <clears throat> I think you may have used the, the word, the word uh, annihilate at one point, <laughs> the uh, thinking inside of ufology. Mm -hmm. And here I'm reminded of Jacques Vallée uh, has said the same thing, you know, that you have mainstream science, which is frustrating to him because they just refuse to look at anything outside of the parameters of mainstream science, mm -hmm. which is not a scientific principle. Mm -hmm. And But he also has equal um, critique for the folks in ufology who are convinced it's extraterrestrial and are only looking for data that will support that. That's, again, not a scientific approach. Mm -hmm. If you begin with an assumption about what something is or what it can be, you are, as a certainty, guaranteeing that anything that doesn't fit one of those will be outside of your purview and you will remain ignorant. Mm. So what I, what I hear here is that we have to begin by broadening the scope as much as we can 
try to work with as few suppositions, assumptions as we can, gather data, then look for patterns. Mm. Um, and, and that's something I certainly encourage. And as long as I've been in this, I'm sure you feel the same way, it's still the data gathering stage. It's still, it's still looking for patterns and collecting data and let it teach us rather than us go to it with these, these uh, presuppositions about what it can be. Mm -hmm. Well, and not to, uh, you know, sort of dive too much down this sort of rabbit hole. I guess what I'm starting to think, though, is, you know, what's a good way to think about what Lou Elizondo is doing in the in the space sort of generally? You know, I think it does help for us to, you know, the best we can, uh, you know, try to categorize his effort, uh, try to, uh, you know, give it a... A framework of meaning you know I think a lot of the time we are in the position of thinking that we're like scribes of some kind you know we're we're gonna write down every little nugget and 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 we're gonna create some kind of a patchwork quilt that if we do all of this uh, transcription properly will when we step back and look at it will reveal to us you know what's really there what's really going on um, and you know to some degree, he may have kind of pushed on this idea a little bit, uh, or at least promoted this idea a little bit, because he has used this term, you know, I'm leaving breadcrumbs along the way. So I do think there is an element of truth there that in the midst of all of his analogies and anecdotes, whatever, there are some real nuggets of what's going on. At the same time, I really don't take him to mean that it, what I just said, that if, if, if we listen to a hundred of his interviews and we you know put it all down in some sort of uh, input it into an AI machine, that we're going to get some sort of printout that's what is really happening. Um, I feel like that's important to emphasize, you know, because, you know, he himself seems to be getting, you know, pretty exasperated with kind of this uh, hunger or craving for, you know, the next thing he's going to say. And I think he probably, and I, I am, you know, just kind of putting words into his mouth. I would love for him to, to comment on this, you know. Uh, I don't think he's wanting that. I don't think he wants, he no longer wants uh, folks to, to do that. And has probably gotten to a place where he has recognized that his presence in the conversation is becoming more of a detraction uh, to this effort than, than maybe a help. But I don't know what you would think about that. Uh, you know, what, what is the real purpose of all of these different, you know, opportunities to provide insight? Right, well, it's funny when you were talking about that, that patchwork quilt kind of notion, I was reminded of something that was really interesting. When I was studying biblical studies and religious studies, uh, there actually was one of my profs had actually been reading excerpts from some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. And in these commentaries about certain Dead Sea Scrolls, it hadn't been fully released, right? Mm -hmm. this, this one section of Dead Sea Scrolls had not been fully released. Mm. But what he was actually able to do was in the, the margins and in the, the, the quotations and the references, he was actually able to piece together an entire uh, reconstruction of some of these Dead Sea Scrolls, wow. even though they were not meant to be reliefs, but mm. he, he was able to put it all together. Yes, yeah, so I was just thinking about that when you mentioned Elizondo, because that's that's basically what people are trying to do. They're yeah. thinking, if I take episode you know two of this one show with episode nine, he said over here, then, uh, and then in reference just one comment he made to someone in frustration, clearly all those three things are saying together that this is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I don't think that works that way. And I, I know that we're on the same page about that. 
<clears throat> I think, you know, I get the sense that he has seen himself as a kind of liaison or an ambassador to some degree, you know, like he's, he's trying to um, obviously gain traction in Congress because mm -hmm. he knows that um, in military circles there's been stigma and, and various, uh, you know, thinking about this, people concerned about their careers, mm -hmm. you know, pushback, <clears throat> that they just haven't reported on it. And so we have, even Chris Mellon's talked about, we may be sitting on a, a wealth of data, mm. but no one's analyzing the data, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because we have this kind of stovepiping thing going on, these silos of information in the different agencies and the different military branches, again, maybe there's a wealth of data there and the pattern's there to be found, mm. but no one's looking, right? right. Yep. And no one has access to all the data. So guys like Elizondo and Mellon have been pushing to get Congress involved because they know that's how to get that kind of response. Mm -hmm. In the same way that the Department of Homeland Security was put together after 9-11 as a way to say, enough of this competition between the FBI and the CIA, we need to come together and combine uh, intelligence services so that we get the best picture we can of what's mm -hmm. really going on in the world geopolitically. Same thing with the phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we should be gathering all the data we can and get the best minds on this and hopefully even open it up to some people in the private sector, academics and whatnot, get their thinking on it too. Um, so I think he's been trying to do that while also trying to like pull along some of the people already deeply invested in this and mm -hmm. the UFO Twitter crowd and whatnot, mm -hmm. but also trying to guide them down a slightly different path, a more open-ended path, mm. because he knows if there's more grassroots, you know, upheaval kind of like pushing for this uh, and uprising, that that also is going to put pressure on Congress and it will also help normalize this topic in the media and in our political circles. So he's trying to do both, I sense. And he's trying to like get movement in Congress, which will then behoove the intelligence services to get involved and cooperate, but also create this upswell in the public, which spills over into the media. So the whole thing gets more traction in the long run. Right. Okay. Perfect. Well, I'm glad we uh, had a chance to kind of talk about that uh, because I think it is important. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I did want to make sure we gave it some attention. So uh, the next clip that we can look at here is let's look at um, a pretty recent clip. And this came from the uh, Artisan Tony show. So this was uh, Artisan Tony with Alexei and Chris Lado. And uh, Lou talks about uh, the analogy here of, uh, of copper and I think copper smelting. So let's see if we can get that. I want on. to share something with you and I don't want to cut you off, but, but this no, is, it's fascinating you say this because I had a, a, a really good conversation with uh, a dear friend of mine and I won't say who, but, you know, guys very much into philosophy and, and by the way, very qualified. And he opined something and he, he, he explained it to me in very lay terms, which is often what I appreciate because I'm, I'm, not, so, I'm, not, as, I'm not so smart. Um, he, um, he explained it a bit like, uh, imagine you have this vat of copper, pure copper at the U.S. Mint, and they are, they're going to make a bunch of pennies for the month. And so they have this huge cauldron of, of boiling pure copper and they make all these little pennies and those pennies find up getting going into circulation. And over time, those pennies, because of the natural state of, of, of the universe and how, how, how entropy works and whatnot, um, they start to rust. They start to oxidize. They start to take on the patina of the environment, right? And then at some point in time when the pennies have outlived their usefulness, they go back to the US Mint, at least in theory, they get melted down, 
the slag and the oxidation is scraped off the top. And those pennies go back to the hot cauldron of collectiveness, back to the one, to the big, to the big hot pool of copper, pure copper, uh, only to, you know, potentially go back out again and to eventually make another penny and, and be recycled. Um, I found that very interesting. Again, I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to it one way or the other, but, but it reminded me of that conversation I had with my friend when you just said what you said. All right, so uh, what are your thoughts on that clip? Uh, taking that analogy, my takeaway is that uh, the phenomenon is found in copper, uh, that it's made of <laughs> copper, right. uh, and that if we collect enough pennies, and melt them down, we have a, a pretty direct line to, I think, what is going on uh, with uh, the phenomenon high strangeness. I don't know, just, I'm just spitballing here, but is that kind of what you were thinking uh, with that analogy? That's logical reasoning, yeah. and that, that really follows the principles we just talked about. <laughs> Clearly, silver's the wrong avenue to look, <laughs> copper is the way to go. <clears throat> no, but um, all jokes aside, you know, uh, you had listened to more of that clip than I had, and you know, we were talking before we went on the air about how, uh, you know, he's, he's referencing consciousness, you know, and how we, and I've thought a lot about this, I've studied this for a long time, this notion that, you know, what is consciousness? Who are we, you know, and, and what begins and ends that process? You know, is it, is it just when the body, you know, dies, that consciousness snuffs out like some in re the reductionistic mainstream would want us to believe, even though there's lots of evidence, as we keep talking about on this show, that that's not the case at all. But what's interesting there is that, you know, number one, he's talking about this notion that an individual lifetime, an iteration, right, may be um, one of those pennies. But the, the core of it, what really is the substance of the penny, is the copper itself, right? That's the source of it. And that that is undying, that you can scrape off the, you know, the sludge and whatnot, the rusting, the dirt that, you know, builds up over time. But that core consciousness can be put back into this sort of central, um, you know, cauldron and reused over and over again. And you can smelt new pennies, you know, numerous generations. And in fact, you know, there's really no limit to it kind of thing. So when I hear that, I think him talking about, I hear him talk about us, you know, that we as individuals, um, and, you know, lots of people have talked about, um, you know, the idea of past lives, the sense that, although it's rare, some people do actually remember previous iterations, you know, where they were a different penny, mm -hmm. you know, uh, from, from somewhere else. Um, but also that, you know, I also take from that, and you know that I've talked about this on this show, that my sense is that there's, there's kind of like a, a central repository of consciousness from which we all are a part, mm -hmm. uh, including whatever alien beings, uh, you know, are in the picture. Mm, right. ETs, interdimensionals, whatever. So that's interesting that that may be a, a path forward in terms of communication and understanding that we all have this, we all have this source that we come from. But also that um, when we ask questions about who they are, who we are, we should keep in mind this much larger picture, this much larger context around consciousness itself and what it is over time. Yeah. I mean, I'm encouraged to hear the use of this analogy. I think it is, um, as you said, it is you know, pointing toward a model of consciousness. Uh, and the fact that we're talking about that in the same, you know, context of talking about UFOs and and other, uh, you know, sort of paranormality. I mean, to me, that's 
that's the direction we need to be going. Um, and we've certainly talked about that uh, for some time. I, I, I've often been struck by, even though we're kind of already, I think, in this camp looking at, at, at this topic from that particular perspective of consciousness being fundamental, um, I, and I know we've talked about this a ton, uh, you know, the degree to which folks will listen to uh, that kind of clip and that anecdote and, you know, not, just not quite be able to process, you know, what it is that he is trying to get us to consider. You know, I don't think he is positing with that story that this is exactly what it is. But what he is trying to do is to get us to think differently about the way that we understand our reality, the way that we understand our individuality, um, and and how connected we are, how disconnected we are, what really does dis distinguish uh, me from you, and, and, and maybe even beyond that, you know, uh, me, not only me from you, but me from everything else that, that, that is in my experience. Um, and so, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I think part of our you know, kind of uh, task, if you will, is to get folks in a place where they're more comfortable with this concept. They're not, again, not it specifically, um, but because I think it, while it is a good analogy in some ways, it may not be great in others, but just getting comfortable with thinking about this topic from the standpoint of uh, the interconnectedness of it all, that that we tend to really otherize the phenomenon to the nth degree, literally calling it the others. And I think that is a good, good term to use. At the same time, there is, a, there is this sense in which it's not necessarily other, that we really are all part of the same thing. And the way that it manifests or expresses itself in reality is just what to us makes it seem different and distinct. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, again, we want to encourage people. It's not about uh, running, you know, to the town store with with this uh, this particular analogy. And he even says, he said, you know, I this what you said made me think about this. And it's just sort of a general analogy. Again, thinking outside the box. And when you think about any kind of scientific experiment, the whole notion of what makes it powerful is that you can control for all other variables. So whatever variable you leave kind of in play and adjust up and down gives you a sense of how much um, impact that has on the result, which then allows you to model the way nature behaves, which allows you to develop technology, etc. But again, the premise there is that you can control for all other variables. And then only when you know there's just this one in play can you say this one is responsible for this, right? Mm -hmm. There's maybe not just correlation, but maybe even causation here. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I hear him saying is, before we get to answers, we have to know what variables are in play. Mm -hmm. You know, like, is there just me, this iteration, mm -hmm. and then there's them, other iteration, or is it more complex than that? You know, mm -hmm. just as we began talking about how our brain function can be impacted by the bacteria in our gut. Mm -hmm. You know, like, most people, when they think about me, who I am, what counts as me, they don't think about bacteria in their gut, right? right. And yet, when it be becomes a sort of seamless process, we don't know any better. You know, like there's, I've read a lot of research around um, the two hemispheres of the brain. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, they're, they're like two different personalities. Right. And somehow we harmonize it in mm -hmm. a way that we experience one 
kind of reality and one experience of me. But mm -hmm. you can do something as simple as, and there's been some work done even on people who had various, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome or whatnot. For instance, there was this one guy who had been in Vietnam and sometimes he would have PTSD in certain situations because one part of him would experience the trauma from Vietnam. Mm. And so at one point he was sitting in, the, in the, uh, the doctor's office and there was some sort of like bamboo kind of, you know, fake stuff, uh, you know, kind of in the corner kind of thing. Yeah. And what they would do is they would cover one eye, which would trigger the other opposite hemisphere of the brain to sort of become active. Hmm. And that, that hemisphere had no problems. Like I'm sitting in an office, that's like a calm looking bamboo tree. It's not even real, right? Hmm. Then they took that blindfold off and covered the other eye. Suddenly panic came in because he saw Vietnam all over again. He thought he was going to be shelled, right? Wow. Or shot. And by doing this back and forth, he was able to get the two hemispheres of the brain to begin to communicate and hmm. talk to each other and therefore have the more rational side begin to sort of like help the more intuitive childlike side of the brain hmm. to not respond instinctively that way that it had. So it's a kind of therapy, but that goes to show how much, whether it's gut bacteria mm -hmm. or it's the two hemispheres of the brain, what makes us us is more complicated than we imagine. And just because we experience it as one, you know, consistent experience of me doesn't mean there aren't multiple inputs into that. Mm -hmm. And that's just for each of us, mm -hmm. right? And then you think about how that may be going on with the others. Maybe they are somehow interacting with us. You've got Carl Jung who claims that maybe, you know, the collective unconscious and the personal unconscious mm -hmm. is partly in play here. Uh, it's, we're talking about really thinking outside the box here. And uh, that's what I sort of, again, hear Lou pointing towards. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. And, and too, I think uh, there's this notion of, of time or how time uh, plays into that sense of, of self, that understanding of self. Uh, you know, in his story that he's using, there is a, a progression of events, you know, from the, the pool of copper to the, uh, the separation, the creation of the individual pennies. And, and these are moments in time that kind of proceed, you know, one to the other. And it is that really time, that element of time that allows us to formulate and, and have a persistent notion of self in a way that I think we might not have otherwise. You know, so it's interesting that, you know, for me at least, to, to think of it from the standpoint of what would, what would a notion of me be if I didn't have this flow of time that I have experienced? Um, you know, if I were to step back and look at myself from a whole, you know, sort of Nathan from the first moment of Nathan to the last moment of Nathan, what, what person might emerge from that uh, perspective? Or what if I flipped it? What if I, you know, from the, from the end point to the, to the beginning, you know, and kind of a Benjamin Button situation, you know, how does that define who I am? Uh, so, you know, time plays a, a pretty fundamental role in understanding. And he talks about that quite a bit, too, uh, in, in, in many different places. Uh, the way in which we human beings experience time uh, is certainly not the way that, you know, every sort of entity that we know of experiences time, from the smallest of creatures to, to lar larger creatures that live longer than we do on average. Uh, so their notions of, uh, of normal or of, uh, of a, a, a life well lived are totally, you know, colored by that that period of time that they experience. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I was thinking about a couple things when you mentioned that. Number one, a couple times now we've mentioned that show Arrival, that movie on here. And what's fascinating about that movie is, um, spoiler alert here, people who haven't seen it, 
But um, we see normal progression of time in the movie, right? Or what we think is the normal progression of time. And she's having what we think are these memories mm -hmm. uh, about this daughter that she had. And in the course of the movie, she um, ends up interacting with these alien beings. And part of her job is to try and figure out their language. Mm -hmm. But part of figuring out their language comes down to experiencing how they think, how they experience reality. And she begins to realize it's different. And even when I was studying psychology, psycholinguistics was one of my favorite courses because mm. it's, it's about the interaction between thinking, producing language, and then language producing thinking, very much being a kind of a circular kind of arrangement. Right. And uh, so what she experiences as she interacts with these other beings, these aliens, is that she begins to experience time differently, partly because she's exposed to their language, their way of thinking. Mm. And so towards the end of the movie, we find out that actually she's having what you might call memories of the future. Mm. She's having flash forwards. And um, so that, that's fascinating in itself, uh, just to think differently. Because like, like you say, um, who we are, our sense of self is so connected to time that, that you know what you had for dinner before you came here, mm. and that gives you a consistent sense of self. You know, I think again of some of my, my Buddhist training, and one of the things they really try to get you to do there is recognize how there is no consistent self. Mm. You know, that to some degree that's an illusion. And again, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's this continuation of events over time that we can string together that make us think that it's one being, right? Mm -hmm. But really, we've lived enough life to look back and realize ways we've really changed. Mm -hmm. We've talked about on this show how even the worldviews we, we hold, the very way we see reality mm -hmm. has changed several times over the course of our lives. And so when you really ask yourself, what is permanent? Mm -hmm. you know, what, what is it about me today or Nathan today that is consistently the same or what's the core, what's the copper there, yeah. right? With who Nathan was 10 or 15, 20 years ago. And uh, it's, it's a complex question. And again, I think to some degree, it's illusory that we're one being. In many mm. ways, we're not. There's right. many ways that I'm very different than I used to be. I, I remember talking to friends I hadn't talked to in a long, long time. And they, they were like surprised how different I was. Of mm. course, I don't really remember what I was like 20 years ago, but they do, right? right. Um, so it just goes to show, yeah, again, we're widening the parameters, trying to think outside the box again. Mm, for sure. All right, let's take a look at our next clip here. Um, so, I'm going to take a look at this uh, clip from The Theories of Everything with uh, Kurt Jaimungle. Um, and in this clip, Lou is talking about DNA as a type of technology. A thousand years ago, say, yes, that was absolutely manipulated by an intelligent life form. Well, deoxyribonucleic acid uh, may be one way to do it. You can put coding and sequencing in there that will perpetuate over time and time, and yes, you'll have some de degradation over generations. But, but in essence, you could do something that way. And it basically, it's a biological marker, right? So we have to be careful when we say we look for, for evidence because evidence isn't just necessarily a spearhead found in the Bighorn Mountains from 11,000 years ago. It's not necessarily a pyramid sitting in the middle of a desert. It could be far more sophisticated than that. You said put it in orbit, right? Well, what if, if we put that rather than orbit, we put it into the human body, you know? So anyways, that's, 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 what I know it's a very long winded way to answer that question. Yeah. All right, so uh, that's a great clip. I really enjoy uh, him talking about uh, DNA, uh, particularly in the light of uh, the context of being a kind of technology. Um, so 
you know, again, this is a good example, right? We, uh, we have the community kind of listening to that and thinking, okay, DNA, uh, we can decode it, or uh, DNA is a kind of technology um, that uh, if we just understood it better, it would tell us that, you know, insert answer to mystery X. Um, and, you know, again, while that may certainly have elements of truth, um, I'm not necessarily sure that's exactly what he's going for uh, with that particular example. Um, again, he's getting us to try to think about ways in which, uh, you know, elements that are in our environment uh, that, uh, you know, maybe all, maybe too familiar to us uh, can be looked at from a different perspective uh, and be connected in some way, some form or fashion to what the phenomena may actually represent. Um, again, I don't think this is necessarily uh, him saying, you know, we're all alien hybrids, uh, but uh, it is you know, his attempt at getting us to look at something as simple as biology as a, uh, you know, as something that, you know, maybe can be imbued with a little bit more in intrigue and something that is purely just a part of, uh, you know, human evolution on the Earth. Yeah, that's a, a fascinating clip. Um, I, I hear several things that he's uh, intonating in that, uh, in that little clip. Number one is, you know, where do we look for technology? Again, what are your assumptions? Mm -hmm. You know, do we, do we look like SETI is trying to do? A fairly narrow range of evidence of you know alien life we talked about this before how in some ways it's almost humorous that it was designed to sort of capture radio technology radio mm -hmm. emissions because that was our big thing cutting edge 60s and 70s right, right. And how much that's changed already but you know because these things are costly and there's different uh, groups involved with different agendas it's sometimes slow to, to, to change the paradigm and what he's talking about here, and this has become more of a recent thing ever since we, you know, coded the genome and everything, is that DNA itself mm. would be a great mechanism to uh, bring about change. And it, it could serve a double purpose. One, you could um, evolve a species through DNA that sort of comes online over time, mm -hmm. you know, engineering kind of thing. But on top of that, that the message in the bottle could be that eventually a species becomes to understand itself well enough mm that it studies its own genome and begins to see signs, puzzle mm -hmm. pieces, pointing back to some sort of engineering in the past, mm -hmm. almost like a calling card saying, when you figure this out, call mm -hmm. home. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so th yeah, it's a fascinating clip for sure. That's interesting, yeah. And, and you know, we've touched on that theme before as well. There's this, uh, there's this awakening component perhaps that is connected to what's happening here, that as our own understanding of, of our reality, of our history, of our physiology, of our consciousness, is that, you know, changes over time, I'm hesitant to say, you know, sort of grows, and that has a, a sort of strong overtone of being, you know, progressively better. Uh, so in some ways, we, some would argue, you know, we may not have gotten better uh, in some areas. But nevertheless, the uh, sort of scope or sphere of our understanding seems to be expanding. And there is uh, this notion, at least, that as that circle expands, eventually it's going to bump up into something, something else that may be waiting for us to get to that point. Um, 
and uh, you know I really like that idea that that to me just intuitively feels very like uh, matured it, it mirrors what we experience in our own lives you know that is our own understanding of uh, of who we are of human relationships of uh, of the way the world works you know as that changes over time you know we gain wisdom we are in a position to better understand what's happening uh, to uh, more appropriately interact with uh, the world that we find ourselves in and uh, hopefully better uh, treat one another and and take care of our own selves you know these are things that just come with lessons learned in life and it, it wouldn't surprise me if whatever else is out there uh, you know is is very much waiting for us to you know kind of take those steps before uh, we can enter into a more uh, a deeper you know sort of fuller understanding of, of what what's really going on out there yeah and it's interesting um Numerous things I want to say here. Number one is, again, coming down to who we are, right? And uh, I'll give you an example of how I, I keep having that sphere of definition expand, for myself mm. anyway. One is, you know, something like you sort of hinted at there with, like, the cycles of life, you mm. know? And um, we both have kids, and, you know, when you get... To, when I, I'm now at the age where my dad was when I was a teenager kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so... I suddenly see him differently, right? I, I, I had these notions of what it was like to be his age when I was a teenager, right? And now I'm at that age, and I have teenagers, right? And it's like uh, recognizing, wow, was my perspective of my dad wrong? No, mm -hmm. it was just incomplete, and it was shaped by a particular perspective and a certain station of life, right? Mm. And how different it is now, like vastly different, right? That's interesting in itself. Yeah. Um, but then I also think back to, you know, I, I did the Ancestry.com thing, you know, 10 years ago or something. And when you get those first few hits, right, we're like, oh, it turns out you have like a second cousin over in Australia. <laughs> and it turns out that, you know, you have relatives who like were in North Carolina right when the first settlers came, right? Stuff mm. like that, you know, and you're like, yeah, yay. Right. Uh, yay for my team kind of thing. <laughs> and then, um, <clears throat> then you... Uh, it, you get more and more hits, right? Mm. And you have like second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth cousins, right? And next thing you know, and, and it's, it's, you have relatives everywhere on the earth, mm. right? Pretty much everywhere. I mean, s some populations I don't have relatives from, but it's in a lot of places, right? Yeah. And what that does over time is, number one, I would go, oh, cool, so I have some relatives in Germany, ancestors in the UK and Australia and these different places, right? But then you start realizing it goes back to the point where there it was before there was really nation states, right? And mm. you have these sort of like territories, these general areas, right? When and then you go, oh, it's what is the definition of a nation state? What does it mean to be German or American or whatever? You know, it's like, well, that's relatively recent, right? So that also is a, a shifting definition over time. Mm -hmm. and, and so I began to recognize, and then you think about how we all, they say, you know, came from one tribe in northern Africa at some point. We can right. all trace back our history. So in other words. If my ancestry.com kept hitting, I'd, I'd end up with like, you know, several billion connections, right? Yeah, yeah. So that changes your sense of who you are and your background. Um, yeah, it's, it just, it keeps widening the perspective and that, that makes me think about that when I listen to this club. Love that. I want to come back to that because uh, definitely some good thoughts there. So let's take a look at, uh, or listen to our next clip here. Um, 
Let's go with uh, uh, one that was pretty recent as well. Um, and this is one that I think uh, we'll enjoy uh, kind of unpacking a little bit. This is uh, Sean Cahill uh, talking a little bit about dreaming on the uh, Generation Z uh, podcast. Where the hell was I last night when I was asleep? Right. Where was I? Where was where was I when I was asleep last night? How come when I go back tonight, the stuff that I built last night isn't still there? How come I don't walk in like I do at work every morning and see my coffee cup in my dreams where I left it and see my chair the way that it was and see my keyboard where it was on the desk? And yet when I'm here, if I put that coffee cup out in the field, it's going to be there 75 years from now if nobody messes with it. And if the environment didn't change based on all those movements we're talking about. I wish more people would sit down and actually ask that question because most people wake up in the morning and say, I was just asleep. And if there was any aberration to that experience, it was just a dream. I'm not saying it was anything else specifically. I'm saying, how come you don't know? And you just accepted it. You know what I mean? Like, like most of us, we, you don't just walk out and someone says, why is my face wet? And then someone goes, it's the weather. And you're like, oh yeah, it's weather. No, you learned that it's rain. You learned the difference between rain and snow and sleet. And, you know, you have descriptors for the, these things. We just didn't stop short at weather. So why do we stop short with sleep and dream? All right. So I love that one. Uh, definitely uh, thought provoking. Um, and it, certainly right up kind of the alley that, uh, you know, we <laughs> like to occupy here on Liminal Frames. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, you know, the nature of our dreams, uh, the correspondence between what happens in our dream states and our waking states, the fact that we even have this delineation uh, in our experience, you know, that we have categorized dream experience as less real uh, than waking experience. We have this you know, pretty clear marker there. Uh, I find that you know, very interesting, uh, just because you know, we're in a, a sleep modality, you know, that, that uh, all the things that happen in our awareness and sleep time, uh, we've just lumped into this imagination, you know, sort of space, yet everything that happens in waking time is, is not imaginatory, it is, is happening and it is really real. Uh, never mind the fact that both experiences are taking place in our, our thoughts, you know, in, in our minds. And so, uh, you know, it, it's funny how you talked about earlier, the, the use, the way we use language influences the way in which we think uh, and vice versa. I think this is a good example of that. Uh, that because we have created, uh, you know, sort of these kind of distinctions and categories and, and uh, we decided to make them <clears throat> different uh, we, uh, you know, fall into this trap of thinking them of them as something that is, you know, completely uh, sort of separate, apart from each other. Uh, I'm going to get some water while you uh, take a stab at that. <laughs> right. We both uh, experienced a bit of allergies with the pollen out here. Um, yeah, it's uh, this one. I really like this clip because I, I I've, have spent a lot of time thinking about this and a lot of time investigating this personally. Um, altered states of consciousness, right? And I'll let, I'll let people use their imaginations to think about how I might have experienced different <laughs> states of consciousness. But um, 
you know, you even take something like lucid dreaming, which you can actually practice, train, and develop as a skill, right? And um, so, and I use something called galantamine, which helps to increase the likelihood, especially if you combine it with certain behaviors like waking yourself up at a, just before REM sleep and meditating on what you kind of want to experience. Mm. Um, then that, along with this, what this does to your brain state, the galantamine, increases the likelihood that you have very vivid dreams. And again, if you prepare yourself and you set these kind of mnemonics, you can trigger certain awakening experiences within the dream, right? And even as we're using these terms, it's kind of funny, right? Awakening in a dream, yes, right? Yes, right. We think about inception or something, mm -hmm. right? Multiple levels. <laughs> but I've had experiences where I've, I've woken up in a dream and what's crazy about it is I'll, I'll know people in the dream that feel completely familiar to me in that state. Mm. And yet when I wake back up into the next level up, I have no idea who these people were, but what I'm left with is this feeling of familiarity, mm -hmm. but no direct connection to who they are, yeah. right? Which is very, very interesting. And, um, and in the middle of these lucid dreams, I know I've told you about this before, I've done things like the, seen the red brick of a school building and I go up and I rub the palm of my hand against it until it tears the skin to see if mm. it feels like pain and it does. Mm. I bend down and I look microscopically at a blade of grass and smell it and it feels and smells completely real. And in that moment, the granularity of the experience told me there's no way I can tell this apart from waking reality. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, yeah, sometimes the physics works different. You know, mm -hmm. you can fly or right. gravity works differently or things like that. Um, but that's kind of a rule set, right? But, but we assume when we're in this reality, when we wake back up into our waking experience, that this is somehow categorically different, right? Mm. So what I hear Sean saying here is not just pay more attention to dreams, mm. but comparatively, why are you so sure about what this is and you dismiss that mm -hmm. and why? And when we think about the data again from the free study, the vast majority of people experience these others mm in a kind of altered state of consciousness or a kind of alternate realm. Mm -hmm. And again, the problem is that we run into is the assumptions, you know, presuppositions, interpretations, evaluations we make where people say, oh, so were they really abducted or was it just their consciousness? Mm -hmm. What does that mean, just their consciousness, <laughs> right? In light of what we just talked about with dreams and lucid dreams and even psychedelic experiences, mm -hmm. you can experience reality completely differently. And, and, What's even more interesting is many people, even with near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, again, lucid dreams, psychedelic experiences, they come back and they say, that actually feels more real than this. So mm -hmm. qualitatively, all we have is experience, right? Mm -hmm. Even in our waking state right now, it's all we have. That's, you know, everything else we surmise about reality and what it is and space-time and everything is kind of a, is built on top of that. But mm. without conscious experience, we have nothing. That's all we know for sure we have is that we're conscious and we're experiencing something. Mm -hmm. So these these all are, again, ways of thinking in a broad, more broad way. And it's a way to get us to think about the variables we bring to the equation mm. and not be so sure that they're as fixed as we think they are. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, Sean's just, uh, I know he spent a lot of time, uh, you know, thinking about this, uh, you know, not only from the standpoint of uh, the phenomenon, but just in, in his seeking and understanding of, of who he is. Uh, and I think that there are, there are so many practices that we can point to uh, that, you know, just like one can exercise and get stronger, uh, you know, over time through repetition, 
you know, you, you can do the same kind of thing by exploring the sort of contours of your thoughts and your mind. And those who have done that, you know, have really come back with a lot of powerful insights about the nature of reality. Um, and, and we've talked about this too, that our own physics, our quantum uh, sort of physics and mechanics is now pointing in a direction that is getting us to really take very seriously that this notion that uh, the material world that, that we have uh, sort of long thought we've understood or that really shapes every facet of the way in which we interact with uh, our experiences you know, that, that may not be what we thought it was. Um, and there are some very profound implications sort of under the surface there uh, that, that that science is now, you know, really taking seriously. And I think it, it, it makes sense that we would be at a juncture now in our, in our history and in our learning where uh, more and more uh, sort of the things that we have sort of lumped into this paranormal bucket uh, you know, sort of imaginary bucket, you know, that those things are coming back to the front because, uh, it, at least from my standpoint, uh, they, they take place within experience. Uh, and, you know, we all have uh, either our own personal stories or those stories of people that we know, uh, people that we love who, who, who we can't explain, the stories that we can't explain. Uh, and they, have, they are very real experiences. Uh, for us to say, you know what, that was all just a, uh, you know, something that you ate, you know, or something that you drank or whatever, I, I think does a disservice to those people and, and to the gigantic body of evidence that we have uh, for these things ta taking place. Um, and so unless there's some sort of, you know, completely bizarre, uh, you know, kind of common, uh, you know, brain wiring across all of humanity over time, that uh, produces a similar kind of experience or, or, or set of similar experiences, I find that very hard to believe. I think that there really is something that, uh, you know, that, that these things point to. And uh, for us to be able to understand them, we have to go really through this path of, of what's taking place in our, in our minds. Yeah, and it's interesting with what you said there, you made me think about, I've been, uh, really doing a deep dive into Donald Hoffman's work recently. Mm. And, and this also touches on what you were mentioning with quantum mechanics and whatnot. And in that clip, Sean said the thing about, you know, the coffee cup that, mm. you know, we assume will be there 25 years from now, assuming someone doesn't move it, right? Right. But actually that itself is a very questionable notion. And Donald Hoffman's done some great work and he's been researching this for decades. And that's a great example of where sometimes our intuitions mm. are just wrong. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we, we hold them so closely and we've held them for so long, and because we have a shared experience as being the same species, we don't question them. And yet, mm -hmm. he's not just run postulations, you know, thought about things differently, but he's actually, you know, plugged in mathematical theorems. Mm -hmm. And according to his research, the, the likelihood that we actually experience reality as it really is through our perceptions is per, pretty much precisely zero. <laughs> that ironically, while our assumption is, you know, a, a small insect or a, you know, a microorganism doesn't experience much of reality, we're so advanced that we must, you mm. know, get really close to the way things really are. And yet his research shows the opposite, that the more complex an organism, the more abstracted away from raw reality its experience is. Wow. So 
really comes down to not just that we get some things wrong or we interpret them kind of strangely or we get a close approximation, but mm. actually that we really don't experience or perceive objective reality at all, like mm. zero. Right. Like it's a 0% chance basically, according to this, this math that's been run. Rather, he says that what we experience is more like a desktop interface. Yep. So because you're human and I'm human, and like we just said, we came from the same genetic background, ultimately all of us, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just like on your computer, if we run the same operating system, whether it's iOS or Windows, we have certain, you know, uh, a folder, right, which holds information, right? Now, of course, that's actually not what's really going on in the computer. We've got, you know, binary code and zeros and ones, right, right and transistors. But to make it simple for ourselves and for someone who are not computer, someone who's not computer savvy, we show them a desktop icon and we say, if you drag that into the trash can, that might be gone completely, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not the literal truth. It's a convenient truth to allow us to accomplish tasks. And his whole point is that's what evolution has done. It's mm. given us desktop interface with reality that allows us to stay alive, procreate, you know, keep the species going. Mm -hmm. But just like a desktop interface is nothing like the underlying wiring coding of a computer in the same way, again, not just maybe, but he's saying it's precisely zero, mm. the chance that we actually experience objective reality, which in itself broadens the horizon, again, makes us think outside the box. We shouldn't be so sure at all that what we experience in our waking reality, the trees that are around us right now, the soccer games going on in the background, Who's to say that's really what's going on, or is that just the representation of this corner of our desktop interface? Mm -hmm. These, the more you look into this, the more the broader the questions get, and from my point of view, the more fascinating it becomes. Totally, and this uh, is a great segue to, uh, I think the next uh, one that we're gonna take a listen to, um, it's going to be one that we'll probably spend uh, the rest of the episode discussing, uh, because it does get at, you know, what is it that we really know? Uh, what is it that is uh, really going on and, uh, you know, getting us to question uh, sort of all the things that we have assumed to be true uh, that may not be true. And this is uh, here I'm referring to uh, the classic uh, uh, Lou Elizondo uh, talk where he elucidates and expands on what he meant by using the word somber. So I'm going to pull this up. This was uh, on the again on the theories of everything with uh, Kurt Jai Mongol. Uh, the last time we spoke, there were two comments that you said that stood out to me. Well, one was the somber, the somber heard around the world, in a sense. And then you clarified that, or you added to that by saying sobering. Oh, I was wondering, we can get to that. And then also you mentioned that the charlatans of the world will be shown to be charlatans. And I, again, don't know much about this UFO community, but people in the comments were saying, did he mean Stephen Greer? So, why don't you comment on that? You can be as diplomatic as you like. I know that you're a, you're a relatively um, diplomatic person. Yeah, let me um, let me start with by by somber or sobering. Um, imagine imagine everything you've been taught, uh, whether it's through Sunday school or through uh, regular formal education in school or what our political leaders have told us, and yes, even maybe our mothers and fathers around the dinner table have told us, or maybe at bedtime, um, about, about who we are, right? And our background and our past. Um, what if all of that turned out to be not entirely accurate? 
in fact, the very history of, of, of our species, um, the meaning, what it means to be a human being and our place in this universe. What if all that is now in question? What if it turns out that a lot of the things that we thought were one way aren't? Are, are we prepared to have that honest question with ourselves? Are we prepared to, to recognize that we're not at the top of the food chain, potentially? That we're not the alpha predator, that we are uh, maybe somewhere in the middle? You know, it's, it's interesting because I was having discussion with a friend uh, not too long ago, a really, really, we call them gray beards in the, in, in the government. Really, really smart guy. I'm not going to mention his name, but, but I was talking to him probably a couple months ago. And this is a guy who was always paid to solve the hard problems for the U.S. government. Cold War. How do we solve that, right? How do we do these big, big things? How do we go in and, and, uh, and, and beat the Russians at their own game? Um, so this guy I respect tremendously. And, and we had a conversation. He said, you know, Lou, um, mankind's been around for a little while. And for most of that time, mankind's been around. We've been smack in the middle of the food chain. We've been, um, you know, we, we, we ate a lot of things. A lot of things ate us. And that's just the bottom line. And about 70,000 years ago, something fundamentally changed. Something changed. And, and our species was instantly catapulted to the very top of, of our planet as far as predatory animals. And, um, and now all of a sudden we became the most feared. Um, we, we, we were the most lethal uh, and the most successful. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, the, the clip that people talk about. There's been videos uh, sort of made about that. Uh, just a great exposition on our place in, in the universe as we understand it. Uh, you know, and, and uh, sort of this notion that this topic, the topic of uh, UFOs and the phenomenon high strangeness may very well rewrite everything that we know about uh, who we are. Um, you know, to me that is very profound. Uh, you know, it is, it is somber, uh, somber in the sense that, you know, there's so much that we have uh, built on top of our, uh, these <laughs> structures of knowledge that, we've, that we all have inherited. You know, when we're born into the world, we come into a, uh, onto, onto a stage that we have not created and we're playing a part on that stage. Uh, in a play that we, you know, are really kind of learning the lines as we go. Um, and so then to find out that uh, what we thought was incredibly firm and, and sure and solid uh, is very much not the case. And we're going to have to do a lot of rewriting and re-understanding. And that can be very destabilizing, um, particularly as that uh, process really trickles down uh, into all facets of our society and then into our, our understandings of our own selves and our families. Uh, so you can very easily see how this you know, new knowledge, new awareness really changes the game. Uh, you know, so, and then he also talks about in that clip the, uh, this famous sort of 70,000 year, years ago. Uh, that, uh, you know, something dramatic changed in our trajectory. We went from being in kind of a, a type of homeostasis with our environment to being, you know, this uh, sort of amazing apex predator and, uh, you know, 
plenty of examples of us hunting to extinction, uh, the megafauna that populated pretty much every landmass on the globe. Uh, and so the, the sort of hint there, at least a lot of folks have taken it to mean to be a hint, that there was a, you know, kind of a hand in that change, that it didn't just happen by happenstance, it uh, was directed and engineered to some degree. Uh, I I've always wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, do you think that that is a, um, you know, that, that's something that we can take to the bank, that there's a, you know, a real indication that something may have happened around that at time, and, uh, and if so, what, what, what might it mean? Yeah, that, that is the mother load clip for sure. Um, let's sort of break it down a bit, a, a few things at a time. Uh, and remind me if I miss any of the, the mm -hmm. elements. First, first on this, um, these, these words that he chose, these terms, right? Somber and sobering. So I remember when that first came out, again, I, I was a tad frustrated that people said, oh, Lou's saying it's bad news. Mm -hmm. I mean, what else can those words mean? So <laughs> basically it's Independence Day. We're in, we're, in a tough, we're in a tough spot, you know? They're gonna come here with like, you know, their entire armada of alien ships, and it's they're going to like, you know, <laughs> and we need Will Smith to save us. Right. It's our only hope. <laughs> so, you know, and what he's really saying is that if you have a lot of faith built up mm. around the way we interpret our history and we interpret reality, and defining who you are and who we are as a species largely rests on those presuppositions about who we are in our history, maybe, maybe even our religious history, mm -hmm. then you may be in for a, a, a rude awakening of sorts uh, because what we learn may call of that into question. And that is sobering in the sense that it makes you stop and think, it gives you pause, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean it's negative, mm -hmm. right? It just means some people get very attached to a certain definition of who they are. And again, going back to my Buddhist training, they really try to get you to not do that, to loosen up those connections, because actually freedom comes in not being too closely identified mm. um, with any perspective, any identity, because it actually creates suffering, because you can lose those things, right? Whereas life is just shift and change and, and constant movement, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, my personal experience when I hear that is not one of a sober experience, because I already see reality that way. Mm -hmm. I, I've already, as we've talked about already on this episode, been through several iterations where my, the way I saw myself, us as a species, reality has shifted. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Now, on this this question of this, yeah, he's kind of implying a, a kind of bioengineering that happened 70,000 years ago, that what he's basically saying, and I've heard this you know, mentioned elsewhere, is that the evolutionary process itself should show a certain kind of progress, a, a certain rate of progress, mm -hmm. right? And as far as we understand it, mm -hmm. and there's this leap that happened 70,000 years ago that even evolutionary biologists have a very hard time explaining according to how we understand evolution. Mm -hmm. Now, some might argue, well, maybe there's just variables we don't understand yet. Um, or, as he's implying, in this context, when we're talking about alien life and all of this, maybe some greater intelligence came in and did some editing mm -hmm. in real time, uploaded some new source code, so to speak, into our DNA, and that suddenly allowed us to take a very different place, mm -hmm. different position within the entire biosphere. Mm. That seems to be what he's implying. What do you take away from it? Yeah, uh, well, existential comes to mind. So the word somber, 
to me is, uh, you know, is existential. Uh, and if you've lived long enough and had, a, had enough experiences, you've gone through at least one period of existential crisis. Uh, and that doesn't mean that that you're dying, you know? That means that the world that you knew, that, that you thought you understood, is, is not there anymore. It's gone, it's changed in a fundamental way that then changes everything else about you. And it's usually in retrospect that we look at those moments and say, I'm glad that I went through that. I'm glad that I had that experience because now I have a better understanding of who I am and, and how things function. And I feel that I am better prepared, more mature, wiser. Uh, with luck, we can all look at those experiences and come to that conclusion. And so that's what I think about when I think about somber. I think that it is, uh, it is a confrontation uh, to us as a species, it is a, uh, a catalyst, it is a moment of change that we are going to have to wrestle with that will redefine who we are and that will be challenging, you know, will come with some serious uh, dark nights of the soul uh, and, uh, you know, sort of force us to, you know, take a hard look at ourselves in the mirror and you know, kind of say, what's really going on here? Uh, but just like the experiences of our own lives that I just mentioned, uh, you know, I'd like to believe that we will go, we will push through that. We will do the work that, uh, that we can do the work. You know, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful that we have the tool set, that we can do the work necessary to arrive at a point in the future where we will look back and we will say, you know what, I'm really glad. It was better to have known that than to have been in the dark and and I'm grateful you know so that that's what I think about uh, when we get into the, this subject and uh, uh, you know that's why I'm very optimistic and hopeful that as this uh, you know continues and we you know get more of a public discourse around this topic that uh, it really will elevate you know kind of who we are and, and where we are in our in our point in history yeah absolutely I, I agree with that and <clears throat> Yeah, existential crisis is a great term to use. I think that's very apt. And again, the, the more closely identified you are with a certain view of the world, view of history, um, view of who you are, the more existential crisis you're likely to experience when this all comes, comes clear uh, to whatever degree it does. And as we've talked about before in this show, we've talked about disclosure and what that means. And we've discussed how really what's in play is our very definition of reality. Hmm you know, full stop, mm -hmm. who we are, who they are, what is reality, what is the waking experience, what is dreaming, are these just different modalities, you know, what is life, what is death, you know, what is reincarnation, all these, these issues come into play here, and, uh, you know, part of the reason why I call my podcast Point of Convergence is because this is what we see, right, these overlapping fields of interest that mm. seem to be speaking to each other and mm -hmm. speaking to some larger reality. Yeah, I think um, we've talked a fair bit about, you know, who we are, where we come from, biology, genetics, that kind of thing. You know, there's, I remember even recently seeing uh, an article that talked about all of the basic elements of life 
can be found on meteorites. Yeah. Right. So the the idea is that there's various ways you can define yourself as hybrid or alien, right? Yeah. And so. Um, what they're basically saying is all of the ingredients for life may have come here on meteors in the past from various places around the cosmos and then formed here, mm -hmm. which again raises the question, are we really even earthlings? Right. You know, um, and you could even argue that that might not even be just a natural process, right? It may be that some greater intelligence deliberately spread these ingredients, you know, sprinkled yeah. uh, throughout the cosmos, knowing that it would eventually impact planets and eventually that would seed life and it would grow into intelligent life and maybe in the technology was encoded in the, D in the DNA so mm. that it knew that over millions of years mm -hmm. that would become us, right? And again, what, I'm also an optimist when I think about these things and w what I see is I'm not saying it's all, you know, love and light and it's all, you know, glory. Right. But I, I do think what's what's in play is maybe a kind of family reunion of sorts, which mm -hmm. is much broader, much deeper than we've, uh, we've previously assumed. I love that idea. Um, and you know, some of you may not enjoy family reunions, but I always find them really interesting. You know, they are definitely that, <laughs> uh, it's like Thanksgiving on steroids. Um, but opportunities to connect, uh, with those in your family and extended family, uh, that I think, you know, kind of better, uh, g give you a chance to better understand who you are. Um, and, and I'm always for that. You know, the, the more that we can understand who we are and our motivations and the way we think about the world, I think that that's a good thing uh, at the end of the day. Um, well, the, the sun is, uh, is setting and, and it's interesting when you live where we live, when the sun gets below the, uh, the tree line, the temperature really drops with it. Uh, it this has been a fun experiment. Uh, I know we're gonna do this again and we're gonna do it in different environments just to test out some different settings, but I'm hoping that our audience uh, you know, has enjoyed this, that, that um, you guys have been able to uh, distinguish the signal from the noise. Um, and they're very much like uh, we've tried to do in this episode that, uh, you know, you've been able to kind of tease out, you know, some nuggets of, of good information uh, from, from what has taken place. Um, Exo, how, how, what are your thoughts on this, uh, on this very natural experiment we have <laughs> embarked on? It's been good. It's, uh, it's been an experience and uh, I look forward to doing more of it. And to add to your uh, descriptor of the environment, not only uh, is the sun going down, but the mosquitoes are also coming out. <laughs> so uh, it seems like an apt time to uh, draw this particular episode to a close. Yes, very well said. Well, thank you all for listening. May the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames. Mm -hmm.